Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as are their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and be emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, From the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years later, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for work. Moreover, there are at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. We're going to turn to um, Philippians now, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is the word of God to us today. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. Uh, We thank you that your word speaks to us uh, so clearly and powerfully, uh, even parts of the Old Testament that might be unfamiliar to many of us. Uh, Yet as we come to read it and understand it, uh, we see how, as always, it points us to Jesus. It points us to the work that he does uh, in us, uh, individually and in us as a church. And so as we read this passage, as we hear from Nehemiah, uh, we pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts and speak to our church. Uh, We also want to commit to you uh, our brother Steve as he battles with sickness uh, this weekend. I pray that you give him a good recovery over the next uh, day or so. Uh, so that we can, yeah, he can continue on in, in the work of uh, ministry, and especially in light of the conference that's coming up next week. Uh, all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin with a question. Right, a question. Uh, what do you think right, most hinders the work of God? Right, what do you think most hinders the work of the church, uh, the work of the individual believer? What prevents or stops Christians uh, and churches from living out our mission uh, to live for Jesus and to do the work of the gospel. Uh, what comes to mind when you think about what most hinders? Uh, perhaps you can think of it in two categories. Uh, there are external factors and forces, and there are internal factors and forces. Um, you know, think about the external fa- factors and forces, uh, persecution uh, from empires and regimes right, all through human history and governments. Uh, we've got cultural values and societal norms that push against and silence the word of God and the ways of God. And of course, opposition from perhaps unbelieving family and friends uh, who think that we are wrong or misguided or just simply plain stupid for believing what we believe and for doing what we do. So we've got external forces and factors that press in on us. But are there also internal forces and factors which hinders the work of God? Sadly, we see even today churches self-destructing, right? Shooting themselves in the foot. Christian leaders committing fraud and financial crimes, Sexual abuse, spiritual and emotional abuse. We see infighting within churches, fighting about doctrine and practices. We see personality clashes. And I've even heard all right, of church boards splitting and fighting over the color of the carpet. Right, that's how bad things can be sometimes, isn't it? And we have outsiders looking into the church and calling us a bunch of hypocrites because of the way that we shoot ourselves in the foot and, and self-destruct. You've been in church long enough, If you've been uh, reading any kind of church history over the last hundreds and thousands of years, 
The sad reality is that both external forces and factors, as well as internal ones, can hinder the work of God, the work of the church. Now, in Nehemiah so far, we've seen the external forces and factors at play. Uh, we've seen the geopolitical factors of the Persian Empire uh, and the king. We've seen the rage and the ridicule and the resistance of the opposing enemy nations that surrounded Israel. Uh, and then we get to, uh, and then we see, right, in the, in the previous um, uh, chapter, um, that they were ab- uh, the Israel, the people of God, were able to overcome right, these external factors. But today, as we look into our passage, we see that this is about the internal forces and factors that are in play in hindering the work of God. And we see that it's in fact these internal factors that cause greater damage to the people and to the work of God. It's sad, isn't it? It wasn't just the enemies out there that God's people had to deal with. It was also the enemy within their own hearts, the lack of fear of God and the enemy within their own camp, the people of God who hindered the work of God. You see, those who do not fear God will not love people, others. And those who do not fear God will bring great hurt to God's people, a great shame to the name of God, and great harm to the work of God. That's what we're going to see in the chapter, right? Those who do not fear God will bring great harm to the people of God, uh, bring shame to God, and will harm the work of God. Now, let's uh, have a look into our passage today. So, in chapter 5, verse 1 to 5, we see a great outcry. Right? We've been given uh, two perspectives on the work of the building so far. Uh, as we get into chapter 5, we get chapter 3, remember? It's a montage sequence, a beautiful picture uh, of a diverse group of people united in the work of God. Uh, if there was a soundtrack to chapter 3, uh, it would be joyous and uplifting. Uh, it left us feeling inspired, having read chapter 3. And then we get to chapter 4, and then we've got two sort of scenes, where a short scene and a long scene uh, of opposition uh, being overcome. Uh, they're relying on, relying on God and remembering God, the people of God rallied together and remained at work in the rebuilding of God's city. The soundtrack, if there was one for chapter 4, uh, would have been dramatic, right? Dramatic, uh, but triumphant. What a strong encouragement chapter 4 would have been for the people of God. But then when we get to chapter 5, we're given another perspective uh, to what's going on. Uh, but this time, uh, I think the background music here would be sad and ominous. Right? Sad and ominous. The, the color tone of the scene would be kind of gray and bleak. Have a look at verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Right? A great outcry arose from the people struggling, as we read on in verses 2 to 5, in great poverty. Right, the opposition from the surrounding nations possibly had stopped supply chains, uh, food coming in. The building work for the people required sacrifices to be made, uh, perhaps too much sacrifice for some, especially those with large families with many mouths to feed. Uh, you realize that many had taken time away from their work, right, their own work of farming, to do the work of rebuilding God's walls and gates. And then we hear that there was a famine too at the time, and that didn't help. It didn't help at all, right? That food supplies were already scarce because of the famine. So they were not able to farm because they were busy doing the work of God. Uh, and they were not able to harvest because of the famine. And so we're told that they had to resort to buying food, right? It was so normal for us. We go to Coles and Woolworths every day, right, to buy food. But for them, they farm their food. But to have to pay money to get their own food would have cost them. And soon, the money ran out. And those with property 
were able to mortgage it off to be able to get the money to buy the food. And on top of that, we hear as well that they were being heavily taxed by the Persian Empire. The history books tell us that the king got his cut, the provincial leaders got their cut, and every little piece and pieces got their cut. It was a very heavy burden uh, to live under the uh, Persian Empire at the time. And, and most tragically, some were so deep in debt with no more property or possessions to sell or mortgage off that they ended up having to sell their own children off into slavery. Now, we're told it was an absolute last resort, right? Their last resort was to sell their children, and they were powerless to stop it. Now, when Nehemiah hears this outcry from the people and their wives, he gets really angry, doesn't he? Really angry. Uh, now, why is Nehemiah angry? As you look at verses 1 to 5, uh, why is he angry? Is it because it grieves his heart right, that his people are suffering? Is it because that there is a famine? Like, why God? Right? After all of this that we've done for you, why is the, the natural disaster right, upon us? Is it because he was angry that the Persian Empire and King Artaxerxes were so mean to lay such a heavy tax burden uh, on the people? Now, th those were certainly good reasons uh, for Nehemiah to be angry, but that was not the reason that is stated by Nehemiah uh, in this chapter. The main reason for Nehemiah's great anger is because of the great outcry of the people against their own brothers, isn't it? Against their own brothers, the Jewish people. Now we see this in verse 1. The great outcry was against their Jewish brothers. And then again in verse 5. Have a look at verse 5. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Right? Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now this got Nehemiah really angry. If you didn't quite understand what verse 5 is talking about, the outcry, have a look at verse 6 and 7. Nehemiah said, I was very angry when I heard the outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Right? It's bad enough that people were struggling financially as they made sacrifices to do the good work of God, struggling as they faced the famine and the deal with the taxes that was upon them. But what's even worse was that the people of God were exploiting their very own. Right? The people of God were exploiting their very own. It was the nobles, we're told, and the officials, right? The, the rich, uh, the, 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 the high-flying people of, the, of Israel who were the ones doing the exploiting. And so Nehemiah gathers a great gathering, kind of a town hall meeting right, of the people of God and conducted a, a public trial, so to speak, right? calling out their crime and calling for them to repent of such gross sinfulness. The rich nobles and officials of Israel were lending money and charging interest, right? exacting interest. They were profiteering of the tragic circumstances of their fellow brothers and sisters of God's people. Right? What a way to kick a brother or sister right, when they are down. Now, as the debt of their poorer people, uh, countrymen grew, so then they were forced to even sell off their children as slaves. This is the reason why Nehemiah got so very angry. He couldn't believe what these rich Jews were doing. Couldn't believe it. 
Now, the question then is, what's so wrong, right? What's so wrong uh, about this uh, exacting of interest? Now, Nehemiah spells it up for us in verse 8. He held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold off to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Right, so Nehemiah says, right, guys, we are a redeemed people. Right? We are a redeemed people. We, we have been bought back from slavery by God. That was their history. Right? That was basically their national identity was to be a redeemed and bought back people. Nehemiah shares that he and probably his family have, have spent their money trying to buy back uh, those who have been enslaved by the nations whether that's the Gentiles from the surrounding area of, of Jerusalem or, or from the nations beyond, right, that the people of God had been scattered, Nehemiah and his family had used their very own money, right, to redeem these slaves. And you go back just a, a few years before that, God had redeemed the people out from exile in Persia and in, in, in Babylon before that and in Assyria before that. And then you go back into their history, the defining moment for the people of God, Israel, was the Exodus, isn't it? the great salvation, the great redemption event where they were bought out of slavery to Egypt. You see, being redeemed, being bought out of captivity and and brought to freedom as God's people, that's the extraordinary privilege and blessing of being God's people. But now these jokers, these sinners are overturning all of that. Bought back people are now putting people under slavery, their own people. How could they do such a thing? Right? So Nehemiah is angry. And not only that, they were given reason, given cause for the nations around them, the Gentiles around them, to taunt them even more and to taunt God even more. Have a look at verse 9. So I say, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Now, the people of God were, were always subject to taunts and ridicule. We, we saw that last week. Right? We see it all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, back in last week, uh, the, the, the taunting and the ridicule were for the right reasons, weren't they? Uh, it was because they, uh, they were being true to the God of Israel. Uh, they were being uh, faithful. They were trusting that the Lord God of Israel is indeed the Lord God of heaven and earth, right? The creator of the whole universe, uh, they were being taunted because they were rebuilding this city of God, right? This broken down, tattered, uh, destroyed city of God. They were doing this rebuilding work in the name of God. They were being ridiculed and taunted for that. Right? To be ridiculed for the right reasons is one thing, but to be ridiculed for the wrong reasons right, is another thing. It's not okay to be ridiculed for exploiting and enslaving your own brothers and sisters. Such shameful behavior... Uh, shames and it smears, right, the name and the reputation and the honor of God. So the question is, why were they like this, right? Why were these nobles and officials like this? Right, ne- Nehemiah hammers the nail on the head when he calls them out here in verse 9. Have a look at verse 9. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Right, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? You see, at the very heart of their, their problem, uh, their, their, their exploitative self serving and God-shaming ways is a heart problem, isn't it? The heart of their problem is a heart problem. There was no fear of God in their heart. Their actions make it very clear that they had a very low, low view of God. They didn't fear God. 
seeing as how they would mistreat and they would demean the people of God, those who bear God's name, seeing as how they would deny their identity of being God-redeemed people by being someone who enslaves people, seeing how they bring shame to God's name to the nations without any care. See, only a heart that has no true, true fear of God right, would do such things. And so Nehemiah calls them out and says, you've got to repent, guys. You do not fear God, and there's evidence for the way you treat God's people, the way you treat God's name. And so Nehemiah says, just stop it. Right? Stop this exacting of interest. Stop the exploitation. Nehemiah mentions in verse 10, strangely enough, that he and his family and his servants had also been involved in the practice of lending money. Have a look at verse 10. It's kind of strange what Nehemiah is saying. Was he saying that he too had been involved in this exacting of interest? Or was he merely just saying that he was involved in this culture of lending that created this problem, right, of of profiteering out of it? Now, we're not entirely sure what Nehemiah is, is saying about himself here, but what is clear is this, right, that everyone involved in this entire sad and sordid process, needs to just stop it and repent of what they're doing and right the wrongs. Stop the exploitation and right the wrongs. And so he says, return to the poor what is theirs that was sold to you. Right? Cancel their mortgages. Return even the portion, the returns that they would have produced from the lands and fields that they had mortgaged out to you. Right? Whatever percentage that they would have earned in those weeks or months, give it all back to them. And the nobles and the officials, they say, yes, right, we will do it. We will return all of it, everything you say, we will do. Now, as I read this chapter, it seems very clear to me, uh, right, that these nobles and these officials and Nehemiah himself and his family, even his servants were rich. Uh, even Nehemiah's servants seemed rich enough to be able to lend money to other people. It didn't, doesn't sound like they were lending out of their own precarious situation, right, where they were pinching their pennies and going, oh, I can lend you, you know, I can pay um, your, off your mortgage and I'll take your land. It looks like they were lending out of their excess, their abundance, because they were able to just give it all back like it was nothing. Can you imagine that, right? So you paid someone for their land, and then after that you just give away the land back for free. Right? They must have been pretty damn rich, I reckon, for them to be able to just, okay, give it all back and pay the interest. It makes the exploitation of their brothers and sisters even more disgusting, don't you think? If they had that much money, maybe they could have just given it away rather than be not only lending it, but exploiting their brothers and sisters. A praise be to God. True repentance was shown by these sinners. It would have been a costly repentance to give it all back, plus interest. So before God as witnesses and with a grave warning by Nehemiah, The nobles and the officials were true to their word and kept their promise. And a great shout of praise rang out across the assembly. The people of God were just praising God because it is praiseworthy. It is worth praising God when there is genuine repentance, where people turn away from their wicked ways and they restore relationships. They restore what is wrong. Now this chapter ends with a bit of personal sharing and report from Nehemiah. So have a look at verse 14 to 19. Nehemiah, in this uh, last few verses here, puts himself forward as an example, uh, as an exa- um, model to follow. It's how much, as I read this passage, I kind of wonder, is, is Nehemiah big-noting himself? You know, like, look at how good I am. I don't think he's doing that. I think he's just trying to share with the people about how he tried to be an example of what it means to fear God and care for his fellow brothers and sisters. 
Uh, Nehemiah had been appointed by the king right, to be the governor of Judah, uh, the entire region where Jerusalem is in. Uh, he was a governor for 12 years. Uh, as governor, he had the rights to this thing called the food allowance. Uh, it sounds like a sizable amount of money, uh, and it uh, was derived from taxation right, of the people. Uh, all of Nehemiah's predecessors, the previous governors, had laid heavy burdens, we're told, on the people to secure this allowance, enjoy for themselves the privileges and the rights all right, of eating uh, like a king, uh, as a, a king's representative of uh, Judah, uh, and to be able to do all this entertaining that we hear about later on uh, in a few verses' time. And even the, the servants of the governors in the past had gotten on the action right, to, 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 to get some for themselves. But Nehemiah did no such thing. He did no such thing. Why? Have a look at verse 15. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Now, hear that phrase again, right? It comes up again here, doesn't it? Right? That the fear of God is the reason why Nehemiah would not exact this burden right, to, to tax the people to get his allowance. He refused his rights as a governor. He refused to burden his people. He refused to exploit them. He sought their good, not their harm. Why? Because in his heart, he had a true fear of God. Right? He treated God as God, as the Almighty, worthy of honor and love and service. And so he treated God's people with honor and love. And he served them. And he served with them, as we see in verse 16. Right? Verse 16. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work, right? The work of God in rebuilding the city. You see, Nehemiah, he saw himself not as a high and mighty governor, but as one of them, right? He, he would work with them, serve with them in the work of God. He would acquire no land for himself. He wasn't self-serving. He wasn't trying to build up his own, uh, um, you know, property portfolio to hand down to the kids. He even got his servants not to serve him only, but to serve the work of God. We see how far Nehemiah was willing to go, right, to care for his fellow people. Not only did he not take the allowance out of the taxation of the people, out of his own savings, out of his own riches, he paid, right, for all the, the partying that needed to happen that the governor had to, to, to host, right? As the governor uh, of, uh, of a region, according to Persian custom, Nehemiah would have had to host political dinners, both of the local Jewish leaders as well as the foreign delegates, right? We're told in verse 6, uh, 17 that Nehemiah has these big gatherings of 150 people at his table, massive table, right? There's about 120 people here. Can you imagine, right? A table, right? A big long hall right? of people, and there's all this amazing food and wine. And Nehemiah says, I paid for it myself. Now, I didn't tax the people. I paid for it out of my own savings. He refused to lay the burden on the people he put on himself. Why? because of the fear of God. For Nehemiah, how he sees God made all the difference to how he treated his people, God's people. Now, in this chapter, we see the very real problem, right, don't we, of the enemy within. Right? The enemy within the heart, I think, is the first and foremost problem we see in this chapter. And it leads to the enemy within, right? the people of God, as people who do not fear God hurt and harm their fellow brothers and sisters and God's people. And it harms the work. Right? They're, they're suffering in poverty. How are they going to do God's work? But you see, the problem of the enemy within uh, the heart of the people was not resolved in Nehemiah's time. 
right? You just want, one thing you've got to know as you read the Bible, in the Old Testament, all the problems that are raised, and there are many, but it stems from sin, a rejection of God, is never fully resolved, is it? In the Old Testament, it is awaiting a true resolution from God in the gospel. The problem of the heart was a problem that began from the beginning of creation at the fall. It will continue all the way through the Old Testament to Nehemiah's time. It was waiting a time where there will be a true and abiding transformation of heart. Uh, that's what God's people most needs. Because without it, the, the work of God um, will always result in brokenness and sin. Or the, the people of God will always destroy themselves. Nehemiah, like the rest of the Old Testament, longed for and waited for the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, Jesus came to deal with our heart problem. He came to give us a new heart. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament promises that God will one day give people a new heart, a new spirit, His own spirit He would put within us. Jesus was a heart surgeon, wasn't He? He was a heart transplant surgeon. That's what He was. And all who put their trust in Jesus receives this new heart and receives His own spirit. And we're told that with this, we're able to live in the right fear of God, uh, a heart that is filled with a true love for God so that we can live in true love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and then also for the, to, to love the people in the world. Now, not only do we see the need for a new heart right, in this chapter, we also see the example, don't we, uh, of the imperfect Nehemiah who ultimately points, I think, to the perfect Jesus. You see, out of the fear of God, Nehemiah gave up his rights and his privileges at great cost to himself to serve the good of his people. Right? It's just a, a small um, example, I think, an imperfect example of what Jesus does. The Lord Jesus gave up far greater rights, emptying himself of his place and privilege as the Son of God and became a servant. He humbled himself even to the point of death. He gave up his riches and even his life, so that people will be enriched, so that his people will be enriched in every way and be given true life. Right? Jesus is the one that Nehemiah points to, and Jesus is the one that we are to follow. And so this is how we're able to deal with the internal problems of the church that causes self-destruction. Right? So as we've kind of bring everything together, we, we talk about how do we actually deal right, with the problem of the enemy within. We see that it begins right, with Jesus, doesn't it? It's by trusting in Him. It begins uh, by nurturing a true fear of God that Jesus has made possible because He's given us a new heart and a new spirit. Um, in Christ, there is hope right, that we can live differently individually but, and as a, but also as a community. The only hope of getting things right on the horizontal, on the human level, is by getting things right on the vertical level with God. And how do we do that? Right? How do we do that? Three things. I think first thing, as Nehemiah tells us, is to remember that we are redeemed people. Right? Remember that we are a redeemed people, a God-redeemed people. We have been shown amazing and incredible grace from God. Right? We've, we've been bought by the priceless blood of the blood of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the Son of God. And we show fear of God when we treat each other as fellow redeemed people, as people that we would uh, do everything we can to show grace to the way that God has shown us grace. So that's number one, right? We remember that we're the redeemed people of God, 
And so we treat each other as redeemed people. We treat each other with grace. Second thing is that we, we grow a deep concern um, for the fame and the honor of God's name. That's how we show a fear for God. We, we show a deep concern and honor for the name of God that we'll do nothing, right? We'll do nothing to each other that will bring shame and dishonor to the name of our Lord Jesus whom we bear as Christians and as a church. The third thing is we look around at the church and we see that we are the family that belongs to God. Right? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We grow our fear of God when we commit to being a Christ-honoring church that truly loves one another. Let's just see what's happening there. He's trying to... <laughs> all right. That was a bit of dog fun. Okay. Um, all right, so three ways, right? We, we, show, we grow our fear of God. We show our fear of God um, by remembering that we're God's redeemed people, um, that we would honor, want to honor God's name in the way that we live. And we remember that we're the family, the brothers and sisters in Christ of God. Uh, and we, 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 we strive right, to love one another as a family. Now, fearing God and wanting to be a Christ-honoring church means that we will think differently and that we will act differently and we will speak differently. It, it, it will have a really big difference in the way that we relate to one another as a church. Right, for one, we will never do anything that will bring the kind of outcry that we see in Nehemiah. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but we've got to say it, don't we? that Christians can never treat each other the way we see in Nehemiah 5. But I've got to say that because we still so sadly hear that this is how Christians and churches behave, right? So-called Christians and churches behave today. It should break our heart that in the news we hear of Christian leaders who behave very, very badly. Uh, in the last few years, if you've even been in anywhere near Christian news, you will have heard of prominent Christian leaders who have engaged in sexual abuse uh, emotional, religious, spiritual uh, bullying. Uh, we see the kind of Nehemiah 5 style exploitation uh, of people, embezzlement of funds, profiteering in churches. And it's not just the past few years, but over the course of history of the church, right, we hear such self-destruction within the church. What shame they have brought to the Lord Jesus, what sins they have committed to those who are supposed to be their brothers and sisters in Christ. I think we are right to wonder whether they truly are believers or not, right, when we hear things like this. But we know that the Lord will judge, right? The Lord will judge. Now, thankfully, uh, not all churches and Christians are like that, right? It may seem that way sometimes because it's all passed on the news. Only bad news makes the news, by the way. Uh, the good news no one talks about. Uh, but I think there is much evidence, isn't there, that God's Spirit... Uh, in those who believe in Jesus, have been at work in Christians and churches, such that there is evidence and experience uh, of this kind of transformative power of the Spirit to make us people who fear God and so love one another. I hope it's been your experience that you've been in church long enough to be able to see the good things. Um, people who are transformed, people who fear God and who love one another in really sacrificial and genuine ways. Now, for us as SLE Church, uh, this is what we are called to be, isn't it? A people who fear God, right, who long to honor Christ as we live our lives, uh, showing genuine love and sacrificial service to one another. Uh, let us make sure that we identify and we deal with the enemy within our own heart when we do know that there is a lack of fear of God, and so we, we treat each other, uh, who are God's redeemed people, the family of God, badly. Let us examine ourselves 
to see whether there are any loveless and selfish and hurtful things that we do right, that damage and destroys our relationships within the church and destroys our witness right, to the world. And as we identify these things within ourselves, as we identify things within our fellowship group and within the church, let us repent of those things. Repent within our own hearts, perhaps repent with other people as you notice things that you guys, that we do, uh, and then right the wrongs and restore things the way that they should be. Rather than taking from other people, let us be those who give generously. For those of us who have more, either blessed with more material possessions or blessed with a greater spiritual giftings and maturity, uh, let us make sure that we use what we are rich in to bless and be generous to others, not to exploit and not to lord over or not to hurt or harm or bully, but be those who give generously. Together, let us be people who strive side by side as the family of God doing the work of God. That is our witness right, to the world. And so if you are not a believer here today and you have come in today uh, with bad experiences of Christians being hypocrites, and Christians are by no means perfect, so there are many reasons I'm sure you can think of as to why Christians behave badly. But I hope that over time you will come to see that Christians are those who fear God, that because we fear God, we are transformed to love and serve each other in a way that hopefully is different from the rest of the world. And I hope that that's something that you'll want for yourself, that you too would see the blessing, the necessity of, the necessity of fearing God and having your life transformed as well, that you'll want hopefully what we have. But for us as believers, let me finish by reading to us this beautiful passage from Philippians 2 as we look to the example of our great Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, let me read it. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your son whom you sent, that because of uh, what he did in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, he has made it possible for us to have a heart transplant, that we who, who are unable, incapable of fearing you rightly, and therefore incapable of being able to love others truly and genuinely and sacrificially. Uh, we have been washed clean. We've been given a new heart. We've been given your spirit to dwell within, within us. This means that we know that the enemy within our own hearts, the enemy within our own community, 
ourselves, uh, those who have this tendency to hurt and harm others, uh, it can be overcome. And so we pray that you help us to trust Jesus and help us to trust in the work of the Spirit. Help us to allow the Spirit to transform us from the inside out so that as we develop and grow a true fear of you, it will transform the relationships that we share in the church. Where there is self-seeking behavior and lovelessness and a desire to push others down and to lift ourselves up within the church, we pray that you'll help us to recognize these sins and to repent, that you'll help us to strive to restore broken relationships to right wrongs that we have committed. Help us to treat each other as redeemed people, fellow redeemed, and so treat each other with grace. Help us to strive always to never bring shame to your name in the way that we relate as your people. Help us to know that we are the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to be a light to the world. For those who are seekers, we pray that you will help them see that your people are different, not because of how good we are, but because of how good you are, how you have done the work of giving us Jesus, who grows our fear of our, you, our creator, and changes the way that we treat each other. So we yeah, commit all these things to you and pray that you help us to walk in the example of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.